Hi, I'm Sharon Hunter, and this is Moonstone Connections, a podcast that puts the spotlight on important leaders in the world of arts and entertainment. Through in-depth conversations with people in the arts, we will get a chance to learn about them and how they are making a difference. We have spoken several times on Moonstone Connections about how much our current situation with um, the pandemic has affected our theater industry and our entertainment industry across the board. And we have had to learn how to bring you uh, entertainment in a new and innovative way. And so many theater companies, not only locally in St. Louis, Missouri, but across the nation, have come up with some very um, exciting ways of doing that, whether they, it's been on streaming, on uh, with virtual theater, or whether it's been on radio. We've had some theater companies that have come up with these really exciting ways. For myself, um, with my Moonstone Theater Company, um, not being able to produce theater, I came up with an idea because of my broadcasting background to start a podcast. And that's what you're currently listening to. So I can um, at least keep my hand in theater and entertainment by bringing you interviews with very exciting, innovative leaders in our business who have not only had an amazing journey of their careers, but also how they are learning new ways and and, and executing those so that we can bring you live entertainment or taped entertainment so that you can still enjoy theater and live performance, even if it is streamed or if it's on the radio, it's still exciting and viable and it keeps us connected. And that is the most important thing, to still be connected to the arts. And that's what our goal is. So this interview with Amelia Costa-Powell, she is Associate Artistic Director of the Repertory Theater of St. Louis, is one that I think you will really enjoy because she has really great ideas, as, as does the rep, of how to continue to stay connected to their audience and doing that in such creative and new and exciting ways. I hope you enjoy this interview on Moonstone Connections. We have a wonderful guest on. Um, Amelia Acosta-Powell serves as the Associate Artistic Director at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. And before she joined there, and Hannah Sharif, who is the Artistic Director, leads the team in St. Louis, but Amelia is now the Associate Artistic Director. She, before that, she was the line producer at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Prior to that, the Artistic Associate and Casting Director at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. She has various credits as a freelance producer, director, and casting director. Most recently, she directed the Thanksgiving play at The Rep. She's an alumna of the Alan Lee Hughes Fellowship and steering committee member of the Latinx Theater Commons, a member of the Casting Society of America, and a founding member of Closer Look Arts Collective. And she is an inaugural grantee of the Theater Communication Group's Rising Theaters of Color. She's also an adjunct faculty member at Webster University Conservatory of Theater Arts and has taught master classes at a variety of universities across the country, Brown, the Catholic University of America, Howard, the George Washington University, American University. I am so happy to have her on Moonstone Connections. Welcome, Amelia. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Sharon. It's great to be here. I wanted to, I guess, is the way I've always kind of started this out is to talk to you about your childhood. And I know you you grew up in Denver. Is that correct? I did. Yes. And were you right away into theater? As soon as you were a young child, were you a dancer or a singer as well? Um, I'm not a good dancer or singer, although <laughs> certainly I enjoyed those activities. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I got into theater pretty early. I was, I always loved, you know, drama class and being in plays as a kid. Um, I, I like to think that I got encouragement um, and positive reinforcement, mostly because I talk very loud. <laughs> and I think that parents appreciated that they could hear me. 
I'm not yes. sure. <laughs> no, that's a good I'm thing. Not sure. a good thing. It is a good thing. I'm not sure it had that much to do with any type of talent. Um, but it took many years to realize that acting actually wasn't the thing for me. Um, and then when I was in, in college, I really transitioned into realizing, oh, directing and, and producing is more, more my forte. Was your family at all involved in any kind of theater arts or, 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 or that um, kind of? Not professionally in any way, but um, I grew up with my father ushering at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts and I would come along and, and help usher. So I think watching just tons and tons and tons of plays um, as a kid definitely influenced me. Probably saw a lot of plays way too young, um, <laughs> but that was a beautiful, a, a really wonderful opportunity and, and such a cool way. You know, a lot of theaters have the opportunity to volunteer usher and then see the shows for free. So that was an incredible way to get a lot of exposure. That is, it's a great window into, um, you know, seeing so much theater and getting saturated by that. Was there ever a time when you thought about doing something different besides theater or what yeah, did you- Yeah, I mean, as much as I loved theater, even as a kid, I never seriously thought that I could have a, a career in theater. Um, even when I was um, figuring out what jobs to apply for, internships to apply for and stuff, um, in college, it never seemed like a real career path. It seemed like a, a hobby. Um, and I was always worried I wouldn't be able to feed myself if I tried to create no, a career in the theater. So yeah, exactly what you mean. Cause I had the same sort of feeling myself with my family. They were always like, Oh, you're never going to be able to make a living and you should, you know, get a real job. So <laughs> Absolutely. And study? it's understandable. I mean, did you study other things? I, st- I double majored. Yes. I studied theater and Spanish and then, um, you know, kind of treated theater as for, for fun and pleasure and certainly learned, learned a lot, um, about theater, but also about other, other areas. Um, but always assumed that my actual, you know, paid jobs would be, um, probably as a Spanish teacher. And that's what I, I went to graduate school in Spanish linguistics and, um, fully thought that I would be a, a teacher of some kind. And oh, then, wow. yeah. Your, your heritage is Latinx. Is, is that correct? That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it, it did your family, um, did they, were they more encouraging about the teaching as opposed to theater as well? Or. Well, with, to give full credit to my, to my parents, they would have supported me no matter what. They're so lovely. <laughs> um, but of course, every parent wants their child to eat, you know, Teaching is not exactly a super lucrative career either. No, it should no. be. Teachers deserve so much um, resource so and pay, but it isn't. So um, yeah, they were really supportive of whatever I wanted to try. Um, and I, I never, I did not have to fear when I, when I changed paths after graduate school, um, I did not have to fear that they would disown me for returning to the theater. So I'm very lucky. And you're a um, graduate from Georgetown University. So you made the trek from Denver out to Washington, DC. Yeah, that's right. Although I was actually born in Washington, DC and um, oh. my grandmother still lives in the area. So I very much feel deeply rooted in both of those communities. Oh, that's great. Did you, did you enjoy your time at Georgetown? Absolutely. DC is an incredible city in general, I think it's a particularly great city to spend your twenties in. Um, and a lot of fun. Yeah. And also, you know, in the arts too, first of all, it has a really vibrant theater community and arts scene. Um, I think not everyone really knows that, or that's not what people think of when they think of DC. Um, but it has so many incredible arts organizations. And one of the things that I found so powerful working at arena stage is that, um, there's a real a real connection between any other discourse happening in the city, be it artistic or otherwise, um, back to the political, because of course, everything in DC comes back to the political. Of course. And, you know, the opportunity to make art knowing that um, Supreme Court justices might be in the audience, Congress people might be in the audience, um, staffer, Hill staffers might be in the audience, and that, you know, stories can really change people's hearts and minds, and that uh, there's a possibility to really kind of have an influence with that feels very um, live and dynamic. And I always really appreciated that. How long were you at Arena Stage? You were artistic associate and a casting director there. I was, yeah. I started at Arena in 2013 as a fellow. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, that was actually back when I still thought I would be a teacher. Um, I had lined up a job, uh, oh. to teach English in Bogota, Colombia. And I had just a little bit of time between graduating my master's program and going to take that job. So the internship was actually just kind of in my mind, one last hurrah kind of, you know, I missed theater and it would be a fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would learn a lot while I, uh, en route to that other job. Um, and then I got really, really lucky and I was invited to stay on and, um, take on the casting director position when my mentor had moved on. So I ended up staying, um, several years and I left in 2017, um, to go to Oregon, to go to Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And, and you were line producer there. Tell me about that because I know I'm sure if people are listening who are getting into theater, uh, as a career, tell us a little bit about your path and where the choices you make and, and what your experience was in Oregon. Yeah. Um, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is such a special place. It really is, uh, theater Disneyland in a lot of ways. Um, (laughs) and I'm, I'm, every time I would see, you know, students from California or Seattle who had been taken a long bus ride to come and see shows at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, I was just so, um, not jealous because I got so lucky too as a kid, but just felt like, oh, that's so special. I wish every kid in America could um, have this opportunity to experience this magic. Um, yeah, so the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is a really different producing model. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to pursue work there. Um, Arena Stage is a, there is a Lort Theater Company, which mm-hmm. so the Repertory Theater of St. Louis is as well. Right. Um, that stands for League of Resident Theaters. Um, so there's kind of a, a some similarities, right? You start to learn how casting works and how creative team selection works and what types of plays um, are traditionally successful and how you develop audiences and things like that. The Oregon Shakespeare Festival is really different because it's a tourist destination located in this um, pretty idyllic uh, small town in Southern Oregon with beautiful, you know, beautiful natural sites and um, a lot of amazing restaurants and stuff and right. and this kind of vacation oasis with, as it happens, this world-class theater company. Um, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival also operates on a, on a company model. So there are actors who have been in the company for decades. Um, it is also a real rotating rep, rotating yes. repertory. So right. Artists are involved in multiple productions at the same time. And on a given day, the shows rotate. So um, there will be, uh, you could go and visit the Oregon Shakespeare Festival for six days and you could see 12 different plays over that time. Um, So it's pretty incredible. And and you know that you can walk into the same space and four hours later, it looks completely different. You can go from, you know, Shakespeare's Venice 1600s to, uh, and then, walk out, go get some lunch, come back in. And all of a sudden we're in, you know, um, we're in a steel, a a bar outside near a steel mill in Lenottage's sweat and everything's transformed, which is so, so cool. That's really, I mean, that is exciting because visually, I mean, that is, you know, um, a real feast for just every sense that you have as a whole theater experience. And as a line producer, what were you doing for them? So to explain to people what that is. Yeah. Producers have really different roles in different companies, but, Mm -hmm. um, in general, I would say a producer is, um, the person who is liaising between an institution and the artists. So that can mean a lot of things, but in general, following a project from inception through completion, everything from getting the right team members onto the team, Mm -hmm. um, facilitating things like casting and creative team selection, design conversations along with of course the production management team um and then sticking with the project through the rehearsal process answering questions solving problems um and then all the way also through the run of the show and addressing anything that might come up which you know here at the repertory theater of st louis that's maybe four or five weeks of of maintenance and making sure everybody's safe and healthy and that the show can go on every, mm-hmm. you know, every afternoon at one thirty and every night at eight or whatever. <laughs> right, right. Um, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, shows run for 10 months. So it's a much 
um, longer it's, right. <laughs> investment it's, and it's in constantly sure moving. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's and a then lot. it starts to involve things like watching the show regularly and making sure that it's still on track and that um, it hasn't, you know, <laughs> the artists aren't suddenly coming up with brand new ideas that are not what the director originally staged. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you always have to be prepared for something. So at least that that is an amazing, uh, you know, training ground to keep to just I mean, you have to be ready for anything. It sounds anything. Like. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, and if one of the other big things that makes the Oregon Shakespeare Festival so magical and also so challenging as a producer is that one of the stages, the the kind of premier traditional Elizabethan stage is an outdoor space. Um, so you're dealing with weather and forest fire smoke and snow and rain. And um, I actually feel like those of us who've produced outdoors might be um, more equipped than anyone for mm -hmm. the kind of emergency or crisis situation that we find ourselves in now with the pandemic. Um, it's not the same, but it's that same kind of responsiveness of always needing a safety plan, always needing a plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, you know, thinking yeah, about right versions of your show and how can you stay true to the original vision while making adaptations to keep everyone safe, all that. Well, you spoke a while ago of mentors, and I was going to ask you, what is the importance of mentors in your life? And how do you find yourself going forward as a mentor and what that means to you and what it has meant to you? It's so important. I mean, I think that theater is one of those practices that you really can't learn it other than in practice. There's mm -hmm. some amazing books about theater. There's some amazing, you know, um, documentaries and different ways that people have tried to kind of catalog the best practices, but ultimately I think it's really something you learn by doing mm -hmm. and to really achieve mastery with that, you need people to help facilitate that learning by doing who are there to kind of, um, watch you make your mistakes, let you make your mistakes and then kind of guide you through, um, how you could approach things differently. So I've been just incredibly lucky, um, from, you know, my high school drama teacher who was incredible through amazing professors that I still love to work with. And um, certainly my, my fellowship mentor at Arena Stage um, and, and the other folks that I've worked with, the colleagues and bosses that I've had in the theater who have been um, just inspirational, visionary artists. I would think too, as a theater artist, and this is what I've always thought is that, like you said, within this, um, this career path, it's so important, the connections you make and the people that you, um, you uh, facilitate a, a bond with or a great working relationship and how much that carries through for your career. Absolutely. It's such a relationship-based industry. I'm, I imagine they all are, but um, I think because we are, all of our processes in theater are so collaborative. Um, it's so important to find people that you love working with, with whom you share values and um, seize every opportunity that you can to work together with them. Um, it's also, you know, a small world and everyone says that, but it's, it's just so true. It bears repeating that you just, you can't be a jerk to anyone. You have to have a good relationship <laughs> yeah. with everyone you meet. That's a good point. That's everyone knows everyone and word will get around. It's true. It's true. And it's, it's, I think it's also, you don't want to burn any bridges because you never know who you're going to come back around and have to work with or meet again, or, or be involved in, in the same theater with it. it yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit too about your, your Latin X theater commons. You're on this, you're one of the steering committee members. What, what is that? And how much of your, uh, your heritage, especially this year, because as you know, the whole BIPOC has come into uh, such a foreground. It is so important. And you're one of the leaders with that, especially now that you've come to St. Louis. And I guess I want to find out what you think about St. Louis and are we moving in the right direction and what do we still need to do as we go forward? There's so much in there. You yeah. have so many good questions on top of each other. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to address them, but remind me if I'm if I'm dropping well, any of them. I guess start with the Latinx uh, theater comments. Just the steering yeah. committee member, and what is that? 
Yeah. So the Latinx Theater Commons is a, a movement. It's a, a collective of self-identified Latinx artists and scholars who, uh, and theater scholars, I mean, um, who basically serve as a, a national service organization advocating for Latinx artists and artistry um, throughout the, throughout the American theater, so to speak, or the US American theater for the most part. We do have um, steering committee members in other countries as well now, which is fantastic. Um, I started participating in the Latinx Theater Commons in 2015, mm -hmm. and I joined the steering committee in 2016. And um, it, we're all volunteers on the steering committee. We do have, we have a producer um, who is fabulous and, and keeps us organized, herds all the cats, if you will. Um, but we are a, a commons-based or movement. I was gonna mm -hmm. say organization and that would not have been correct. We're actually not an organization, we're a movement. Um, and so what that means is that the, the people who have opted in to be in that room um, make collective decisions about how we can be of service and leverage the resources that the commons has access to um, to advocate for, celebrate, and uplift Latinx artistry. Um, so when there's not a pandemic on, we have national events all over. We've we've visited many, many regions. We've had national convenings um, or regional convenings, excuse me, in Miami and uh, Austin and New York and um, Seattle and all over. Um, We've had two incredible um, new work carnivals in Chicago oh, wow. and two incredible um, encuentros of Latinx work in Los Angeles. Um, and we are also working now um, heavily focused on coalition building with other national service organizations of culturally specific or identity-based or anti-racist focused um, organizations, individuals, and movements. So that's, um, I think, the most important work that we can be doing right now and, and um, something that everyone hopefully um, can, can learn from these models and build upon. Um, currently, my biggest role with Latinx Theater Commons is that I'm the producer of our um, comedy Carnival, which was meant to be hosted in summer 2021 in Denver. Um, it will be later <laughs> when it's <laughs> yeah. safe to gather a bunch of people from all over the country. But in the meantime, we'll, we'll host some incredible Latinx comedy content online virtually, which I'm really excited about as well. Um, you know, the, the virtual piece is so, uh, it has such pros and cons because it opens up a radical level of access to people from anywhere, anywhere that people from anywhere provided that they have access to the internet, which is of course we know not everyone, but um, still a much wider group than folks who can take five days and take a trip to Denver and encounter our comedy yeah, festival. That's interesting because virtual theater, because it's become such a prevalent way of communicating now because of the pandemic, it, it does have that pro and con. The pro is, of course, you can now reach audiences around the world and you get so many more people that can tune in and, 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 and view your work. But at the same time, it's still, you know, it's, it's not live. And, and there's, mm -hmm. is, there's that downside to it, but I'm, I'm blown away by the creativity and what they, what people are doing now to, um, to, to make it so special and different and, and innovative. Um, and, Absolutely. And, yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, I guess asking you a little bit about with, with, you know, going back to the question about the BIPOC and St. Louis and you coming to St. Louis and I know community outreach has been a big thing for you to learn about St. Louis. What are your impressions and what do you feel about you know, how our theater community is handling that issue. Yeah, so um, I've been living in St. Louis now about a year and a half. And of course, uh, about nine months of that time, I've been mostly locked in my apartment. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hear you. So, so 
I wish, I so wish that I could have um, spent this summer, this past summer out um, continuing to learn St. Louis and get to know folks and see parts of the community that I haven't gotten to see. And um, at the same time, I already have completely fallen in love with St. Louis. I think this region has so much to offer. There's a wonderful artistic community and not only theatrical, but there's an incredible music scene. There's a beautiful visual arts scene here I've learned. Um, and I think it's kind of a tragedy that outside of the area, people aren't as familiar with all that St. Louis has to offer. Um, and I, I certainly think that myself individually and also the rep with our, our newish team are very interested in kind of sharing the message of just how, how richly, um, culturally diverse and, um, and vibrant and dynamic the city is and the, mm -hmm. and the art scene here is, um, that being said, obviously we, this summer has, I would describe it as, um, raising back to awareness, uh, or, or, shedding a different kind of light on the urgency of the pervasive systemic racism that affects not only the theater, but all aspects of our society. Um, I have been frustrated at times with the idea that this there's like new information that people have <laughs> are receiving um, because the truth of the matter is um, St. Louis and specifically Ferguson was the, was a uh, one, pivotal fertile ground for the building of an uprising and a revolution in 2014 after the death of Mike Brown. And um, if not before then, although there were plenty of examples before 2014, sure, sure. but if not before then, I hope that St. Louisans were aware of just how um, segregated, separated, siloed, um, and unequally treated people of different racial backgrounds are in this area and nationally. Um, you know, I, we've seen some really beautiful work done this summer. And of course, again, um, sparked by, galvanized by such tragedy that I certainly wish didn't have to happen in order for us to have these conversations. Right. Yeah. Um, but out of the spark of the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Breonna Taylor, uh, and so many others, there has been this really rich conversation. And um, I know that you're aware, but depending on what people listening might know, um, there was a, a small group of theater artist activists who got together and then brought more people and more people into the fold to release this document that we see white American theater demands. And um, that's a, a movement. It's one of many movements. There are actually several groups um, advocating and, and doing beautiful work. Um, but that particular document and the conversation that it has started is just, um, I think, a really, uh, a really beautiful act of service that this group of organizers um, put their time and energy into sharing with the American theater um, the issues, questions, and concerns on the table and different people can react to it in different ways or ignore it or grapple with it. Um, certainly I hope people grapple with it and I've seen so many organizations and individuals doing so. Um, but again, I, just to circle back to, it's just shining a light, right? No, none of the issues named in that document or any of the other narratives we've seen over the past several months about, um, the, the importance of tackling racism in our field brought up any new news. <laughs> this right. is all issues that have been going on for um, years. Right. Yeah. And, and even though we, you know, and there, there's sense, there's a sense of, oh, well, we're, it's different and it's new and we're changing the narrative, but the narrative has remained the same. And there's, there tends to be a feeling of maybe that, a lot of white theater makers need to start talking and making changes to the landscape. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, that's definitely one dynamic that I think is really important to name. There are so many um, 
artists of color who have put in so much time, so much energy and um, the burden of solving for, um, or solving makes it sound like eventually the work will be done, which of course we know it won't. It's an ongoing evolution, but I think um, the burden of addressing these issues should not fall on the same people who have borne the brunt of the harm. Um, so it's absolutely critical that that white artists step up. Um, you asked earlier about my heritage, so I just want to clarify um, that I'm I'm mixed race. I am uh, Mexican American and Ashkenazi Jewish. Oh, so okay. um, that obviously all of that influences my identity. Um, and one of the things that is really important for me to always just name and put out there is that I'm also white. I also have white privilege. I also, you know, I have so many aspects of my life that are Latinx centric and focused and I love those and I'm so grateful for them. And then I also um, speak English as a first language. I also have light skin and I get all of the privileges that come with that. Um, So I see myself, that's just to name, I certainly have been a part of, I've been so fortunate to be a part of um, a lot of conversations where the brilliant black indigenous and, and artists of color voices are centered where we get to grapple with these questions. And then at the same time, I'm also in the category of artists who are responsible as people with white privilege for carrying the work forward, for recognizing that racism and anti-blackness while they pers- pervade all the areas of our society and of our lives are white problems mm. that we need to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just to say <laughs> yes to everything, all of it. Um, and it's, it's in- really, well, it, it's, I think it's interesting that you would, that you say that because I, I think sometimes we don't realize that, you know, we're looking at it through the eyes of what our experience has been or what it is. And, and I find that's what's, what's lacking so much is that sense of, but you're not seeing it through, through another person's eyes and what their life experiences is. And you having, I, in a way it's, it's, it's amazing. You've got, you've got experience on both sides and you're seeing it in, 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 in both ways. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, I think there's so much that is beautiful and um, and unique about the the mixed race experience, and then of course there's also like this the identity crisis that is specific to it as well. So <laughs> it has pros and cons. Sure, um, sure. But in terms of the St. Louis landscape, you were asking before if my perspective coming in and embedding in this community and how this community is dealing with these questions and issues, you know, um, I think that the St. Louis as a city has so much rich dialogue going on. And I've been just deeply moved by the organizers that I've seen, for example, leading protests after George George Floyd's murder. Um, The incredible grassroots organizations that exist here on the ground. Um, we've, we've been really lucky to get to connect with a lot of excellent organizers and activists um, through the rep's work. And I'm so grateful to know them and I can't wait to keep working with them and meeting more folks like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how that thread has gone through the arts community before this time. Um, and I'm excited to see how it will after this. I hope that, you know, any narratives that we had about the, the walls that contain our organizations or the funding models that keep us in competition instead of in collaboration, I hope that all of that is somewhat broken down by COVID. We've learned that the theaters don't exist within their four walls. If, they, if that is all they, that our organizations mean, then we're already dead. Right. Um, we've learned that we really need each other. We can't be siloed into our own organizations. We won't survive. Um, and so, and we've learned that the discipline of theater doesn't have the kind of firm boundaries that perhaps people thought it was actually more difficult to define. It's not necessarily, you know, people on a stage in front of an audience. That's not the only thing that makes theater. 
So with all of that in mind, I am so excited for the possibilities of what does that mean for how we can collaborate with the Urban League of Metropolitan St. Louis? What does that mean for how the rep can work with Action St. Louis? What does that mean for, um, you know, how the Shakespeare Festival beautifully created a piece, you know, with so many other companies, opera and dance and jazz and painted black STL. Um, and I it, think that, no, go ahead. Oh, it's very exciting because I have seen just within the last couple of years, such a change, such a, um, such an innovation of doing things that are in that vein of, of making it more inclusive, making it more diverse. And one of the things I think is exciting and should be noted is that you are in a partnership as the associate artistic director, along with the artistic director, who is also a person of color. And that is right there, that is monumental, especially for the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. And I've seen just how much you as an organization now are changing things across the board and across the landscape. And 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 talk about that a little bit, about the the just the innovation and, and what do you have going forward? Because I know the pandemic has certainly changed a lot of things this year. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I'm so lucky to work with Hannah S. Sharif, who's the artistic director of the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. Um, and like I, I might've said, we're, we're a relatively new administration. Hannah was hired in 2018 and, and we both started in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that's so incredible that not every city can say, right. Is that, uh, this was a city that had already, that already boasted, a, a wonderful theater company helmed by uh, a black artistic director, the black rep. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ron has been doing such rich, meaningful work in this city for many years, decades. Um, so we're so fortunate to incorporate ourselves into a city that has seen um, leadership by people of color in the arts Um I think we are, we bring a a fresh perspective, not being from St. Louis. And it also means we really rely on all of the fantastic community members who've, who've shepherded us and guided our journeys as we get to know St. Louis. Um, But Hannah's vision is simultaneously hyper-local and hyper-national. And that's something that I absolutely love. So Mm -hmm. the ability to, um, start a listening tour and really learn from St. Louisans about what they could use, what they need, what they want out of a town hall arts organization that the rep aspires to be. And then also um, bringing in our perspectives on what has worked all over the country in the various places we've worked and bringing those, those ideas and that thought leadership to the rep and offering hopefully the best of what we've gathered and harvested um, to St. Louis to plant it here. So um, it's a really exciting opportunity. And you're right, Ron Himes, who's the artistic director of the Black Rep has done amazing work for years and years. And so it's, it's, it's exciting though to see um, them continue to flourish. And then also to see not only uh, people of color but women in, in these mm-hmm. roles, which is also, I find, uh, something that's going on more in St. Louis now than ever before, where women are artistic directors, managing directors, and producers, directors. Um, and that's that's a very positive thing to see. Definitely. Yeah. What amazing women leaders this city has, especially in the cultural sector. I mean, you know, the symphony and um, coca and like, it's, it's so beautiful. Um, and and really exciting. And I think what you just said just makes me think about how important it is for um, arts landscapes regionally, nationally, just to realize that um, there is an abundance and that various people of color, various people of the same races are incredibly different artists, have incredibly different visions, and we are not a monolith, right? right. And that there's absolutely room in this city for Ronheim's vision and Hannah's vision. Um, which are like share 
many values and are in alignment in many ways. And then are also completely different in terms of aesthetics and, and just personal histories and all of that. So I think it's really important to just keep in mind, like, yeah, there's room for everyone. And there's, um, there's, there's audience for all of it. If nothing else, you know, the way that people are feeling so hungry for theater right now, uh, while they're missing us, while they're not being able to engage with us in, in the same way, it's just such a beautiful reminder. Like the theater is not dead. There's an audience who desperately wants to be in the theater. That's very true. And and that was the, I guess the next thing I was going to talk about is just the pandemic and how, how it has made us uh, have to think of new ways, you know, everyone uses the word pivot or, or change direction, so to speak. And, and how, how is the rep planning on making, you know, changes or what are they going to do starting in 2021? What do you see happening with you all? Uh, or is that still up in the air, so to speak? Yeah, <laughs> it's certainly, I think it will be a while before any of us feel really safe naming what our plan is because we've all learned you can have as many plans as you want, but that doesn't mean you won't have to change them. Um, we have so many exciting things coming up and I don't know exactly how they'll look, um, right. but we've, we've had a, a really cool opportunity to re-examine what is essential about what we're trying to do. What, what are the stories that we absolutely have to tell and how do we need to tell them and when and where and, and um, what needs to be live on stage, what might be shareable in another way, what is a story that belongs in front of 800 people a night and what is a story that should be told to five people in a really special intimate way. Um, cause that's not something we never got to explore, you know, an intimate conversation before. No, um, no. And it's really cool. Some, some things, some stories might be best shared that way. I, I agree with you. I think, I think, um, theater is, is changing and especially this year, because we've had to find new ways of expressing ourselves as artists. And I, I think it's, I, I'm fascinated by things that are going on on the radio, virtually. I mean, it's it's all across the board. It's it's very exciting. And I I think um, the repertory theater is, is, you know, we're all kind of waiting to see what you all do. And we're excited about seeing what happens and, and how, how it'll all sort of unfold in 21. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. us too. <laughs> we have some, you know, the thing, the thing that does break my heart, of course, is that we had lined up such an incredible slate of productions and there are so many artists that I was just tickled to bring to St. Louis sure. whose work hadn't been seen in this area. Um, and I'm still very, very hungry to, to have those artistic exchanges, to let those, to let the audience see and hear from those voices and to bring those artists in to get a sense of St. Louis and to learn, you know, what a fantastic fertile ground this is as well. So that's what I just can't wait for is finding a way everyone that we committed to originally for 2021, we still remain super excited about and want to find a way to share their work. So whether that's going to happen in 21, 22, or whether it's a different version of a project or whether it's a, a completely different artistic experience, but still highlighting that voice, who knows, but I will say, um, for anyone who was already excited about the season, or if you weren't, you should be, you should um, be. we're going to find a way to make those introductions because, um, there are just so many artists who I, I'm thrilled to make an introduction to St. Louis. Well, I can't wait to see next year what you all plan to do. Cause I was so excited about this season and you had so much innovation and so much, you know, just visually things you were going to do that were sounded amazing. So it's going to be, it's going to be exciting to see. And if you can bring, you know, some of those back or, or do some, you know, a mix of, of those shows with something different. You also teach at Webster. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your teaching career and, and what do you feel is happening now with students that are coming up in the theater world and what advice can you give, you know, students that are really thinking about going into theater and what do you see? Yeah, I've been so lucky to teach at Webster this semester. Um, I taught fourth year auditions and, um, it was a lot of fun and, um, 
you know, I think that it's a, it's such a transitional moment right now. Um, it's a tough to be just really brutally honest. It's a tough moment to graduate a theater program mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. head into a field where there's very little work available right now. Um, that being said, I also think it's such a time of innovation and a really exciting time. It's a time when, you know, young artists ideas and, uh, different priorities and competencies are going to be critical. Um, you know, I, I just think of simple things, right? Like the ability to do a really fun TikTok takeover for theater, like that matters now. Um, yeah. and I think that some of the young artists coming out of these programs are going to have just brilliant ideas to offer to the future of the field. Um, they create their own work a lot now. Absolutely. I see. And yeah, and that's, that's, I think I've heard from other, uh, people that that is a, that's, that's something that's really taken off now where that's the way to get your, your work out there. And I'm sure you're Which seeing a lot of that. Great. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm seeing that. And I think it's awesome. I think that, um, one of the disservices that theater education may have served against artists of, of previous generations coming up is this idea that you have to master one craft and that in order to do that, you have to set aside any other interests you might have. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not every program. It's not every individual, but I do think a lot of us were kind of taught, like, pick a focus. Are you going to train as an actor? Are you going to train as a director? Are you going to, you know, learn the business side of things and be a managing director or what have you? Um, and again, like this time of theaters paring down to a handful of staff members who are uh, you know, making budgets and editing videos and hosting podcasts right. and writing plays and acting in the plays. Um, you know, obviously that's coming out of need, but also the, the kind of possibly worn out adage about, um, necessity being the mother of invention is really true. And I think that hopefully this moment encourages multidisciplinary artists to lean into their multidisciplinary instincts and to believe that you don't have to stop writing in order to be a good actor or to train enough or whatever that looks like. And that actually different forms of artistry influence each other and continue the growth in the other areas. So I'm really excited about what that means. I'm excited about students coming out of acting programs who are also um, their own creators and generative artists and are also, you know, <laughs> software engineers or whatever else they might be. Exactly. Cause I think the more you, you have to strengthen your, you know, your, your well-rounded uh, abilities and skills, I think is, is so helpful because it, like you said, something like this comes up with a pandemic and you have to lean on, on, on all the things that you can do and and you try different things, you do different things well. And I that's what I was going to say, you're teaching philosophy. It sounds like it's one of be well-rounded as a student. Absolutely. Yes. I certainly believe in that. You know, I was so lucky to, to get a liberal arts education, um, in that way. And I, I think, um, I really believe in investing with students in, um, teaching how to learn more mm -hmm. so than teaching the content of what to learn. Certainly there's some things I can teach and I hope that my students all walked away with stronger video audition capabilities. Um, <laughs> I took your workshop some... and I loved it. <laughs> oh, good. Yes, yes. Um, well imagine it for many weeks on end. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there, there, of course there are some, just some facts, right? Of course there are some lessons that you just should learn and like, you know, and just some tech things of that take practice and you get your lighting right and you get your background clean and you, all those things. But big picture, you know, you'll use those skills, but more importantly, you know, I think the conversation about how you are resentful about the fact that you had spent all this practice auditioning in this one way and that now you have to learn this whole other way of auditioning. I think that exercise of how do you release that resentment? How do you start over and be okay with that? How do you face being bad at something that you used to be good at? How do you face um, uh, 
learning aspects like editing or um, audio engineering that are not actually your area of interest or expertise? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you help each other out? Because it's no longer you alone in a room, but you actually need someone to, you know, help you with your camera or read your, be the reader on your, on your video side and the theater is no longer providing that, right? All these examples of things that have changed. I think um, somebody who, someone who is well-trained in, um, adapting and being flexible and having a good attitude about that kind of change mm-hmm. is actually going to give me a better audition than someone who knows exactly all the right things to do for the specific technical logistical task at hand mm-hmm. right because it's right. actually so much about the psychology and the energy that you bring to it and the the ways that you show up as your authentic self regardless of circumstance that's great advice. I mean, really, because it, it's it's more bare bones about the basics and it's good lessons to think about that, you know, all of those things that you mentioned, I think are, are things that sometimes people don't think about or they don't remember that it's it's important to, you know, check all the boxes and, and to, to learn different things. And you're also a director. So again, you, you are a living example of someone who has across the board, done many things in theater. Talk a little bit about your directing style and, and, and things that you still want to direct maybe in the future. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I am so grateful that I get to do all these different things. Um, and what I love about directing is that it does pull in all the different aspects, right? Like I think, um, I didn't actually train as a director, whatever skills that I may have or whatever I might offer to a room as a director, it's not coming from, you know, years of tutelage under um, some expert, right? It's actually coming from having tried my hand in so many different areas. It's coming from knowing how to talk to designers because of the years I spent working in a costume shop. It's coming from um, knowing how to talk to actors because of the years I spent acting terribly um, <laughs> is coming from knowing how to navigate uh, challenges because of producing theater. Mm-hmm. It's coming from, um, you know, it's coming from knowing how to read a play because of critical analysis skills that I learned in linguistics school. It's coming from um, all these different areas. So um, that's how I really approach any project, and it's certainly how I pro- approach directing. Um, I really, I think that um, to vastly oversimplify, right? <laughs> um, some some times people refer to uh, artists who are lights and artists who are mirrors, mm-hmm. and I don't. I'm not fully invested in that idea. I'd like to believe that we all have our own, you know, internal shine and also the ability to amplify others. But I love, love, love being the mirror. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, also because of my background in casting, right? Like I'm, I'm so deeply invested in the idea that getting the right people in the room is 99% of the, of the work of the director. So, um, if I've got a good script, to work with and a great group of actors and a great group of designers. Like my work is so easy and fun and joyful. Uh, So that's really how I, how I put it together. Um, And in terms of what I'm excited to direct in the future, there's so much, there's so many great things. Um, And I've had a blast, even though of course there've been so many challenges, I've had a blast learning new things in this, in this time of as you said, pivoting as well, mm-hmm. you know, um, I've worked on my first animated projects during this time and oh, I wow. learned so much. I would love to keep, you know, learning more about that field. And we have so much access right now too, right? That's something that's so cool. Um, we were just talking about, you know, learning how to learn versus learning skills. And, um, if you have an open mind and know how to apply yourself and sure. ask good questions and re- do your own research, right? Like, I don't need to go back to school, although how fun would that be if I could go yeah, back to school to learn I would, I would in a <laughs> all minute. these new, yeah, yeah, completely. But actually like 
there's all these incredible online courses and there's all this, you know, free workshops uh, and yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. And, and you can, you can go and do things that you never would be able to do in other cities now. It's not it great. Yeah, completely. Yeah. You can take workshops from people who live across the world from you. That's so awesome. I mean, anytime I've, I've done a lot of video editing in this time. And anytime I get stuck in my software, I just YouTube it and someone literally shows me step-by-step. It's incredible. It's great. It's great. It's great. What do you think gives you your drive? What it would make, what keeps you motivated, especially in this time of, you know, COVID. Yeah. Um, it's a tough business. I mean, it is, it's a really tough business. You know, for me, it really is about the people. I think that um, when I run out of artists whose work I really want to share with the world or uplift or celebrate or help amplify, mm-hmm. um, that's when I'll leave the theater. Um, but I also don't anticipate that happening because there are just so many absolute geniuses with thrilling ideas and um you know, insightful ways that they describe the human experience that I just am so compelled by and I can't stop thinking about. And then I have to find ways to share those ideas with other people, whether that's, you know, advocating for us to produce their play or whether that's um, pitching them to direct a show with us or whether that's, uh, you know, helping them, talking them, talking to them about their script or, uh, you know, working with them in a class in the teaching setting. There's so many different ways, but um, yeah, I think it's just, I, I, I do, I fundamentally believe that um, a shared experience of art in a communal setting, mm-hmm. which is what to me theater is, mm-hmm. has an ability to build empathy and, a, and an understanding of what connects us as human beings that nothing else can achieve. And I just, um, I believe in that so much that I have to keep making it happen. Yeah. I agree with you. I I don't think there's anything better. And, you know, that, that shared energy that, that whether it's something that you're all feeling the same sadness about in a theater or whether it's something that is like viscerally, you know, stunning, there's something about that, that you just want to continue to make that happen. And I, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think for people who are involved in theater or live entertainment or performance, there's nothing like it. There isn't. Yeah. And it, and it breaks down our barriers, right? I mean, if Mm -hmm. I just come up to you and I start telling you the depressing facts that you would learn if you came to see the play Mojada by Luis Alfaro, you'd be like, Amelia, why are you such a downer today? <laughs> like, please leave me alone. Let me eat my lunch. Whereas if we watch that play together mm-hmm. and we, you know, we invest and we see how every single person in the story is in an impossible situation. Um, and we are in our hearts break for how they navigate those things you know, then we can walk out of that play together discussing all the same issues that I would have listed to you if I just told you the data. Um, But we can do that in a way that feels so, um, that feels so rich and that has this shared context to where we can kind of map our thinking onto this story and we don't necessarily um, shut down or get fearful or closed off in the way that we might if we were just faced with the stark realities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think's next for you? I mean, besides what you're doing now with directing and artistic directing, is there something you still want to achieve as you in the next, say, couple of years? Yeah. You know, I, there are some specific goals or, or um, excitements that I have. And then there are some big picture things about just where I would like to see the field go that I would like to be a part of building towards. But what I've learned is that anything I can plan out um, will never be as good as the incredible opportunities that come my way. So I actually just try to stay really open, say yes to as many things as possible, you know, listen and keep, keep connecting with new people. And um, 
I'm, I'm hopeful that in a few years, whatever those new things that I'm doing will be, will actually be better than anything I could come up with now that I want to do. Well, that, I think that's, that's all I think a lot of us want to do is, is, is also is get through this, you know, what has happened with the pandemic and hopefully 2021 will bring uh, uh, just a new dawn. Uh, you are an exciting and just innovative theater maker. And Amelia Acosta Powell, she's the Associate Artistic Director at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. This has been just an insightful and just truly interesting interview. And I, I just can't thank you enough for being for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Sharon. It's been a pleasure. It's so nice to get to spend some virtual time with you. I know, same here. Uh, so I wish you all the best and I, and I can't wait to see what you do next because I know that whatever you're going to do along with Hannah Sharif at the Repertory Theater is just gonna be you know, so um, innovative and creative and just change the landscape of our city. So thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that's our show. Thank you for joining me. Be well, be safe, and be good to each other. I'm Sharon Hunter. Until next time on Moonstone Connections.